Father, we thank you that you are indeed the hope of all the ends of the earth. We thank you that you hear our prayers. And we thank you, like Bobby was saying, that your words have power and therefore we have our existence. And so I pray for our church as we look at your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would minister to us through your word. God, I pray for those in this room who are tired or distracted, that you would allow them to focus and have energy they need to sit under the teaching and proclamation of your word. I pray for those who are discouraged, that you would encourage them by your word. I pray for all of us who are unwise, that we would be edified and made wise by the teaching and proclamation of your word. Lord, I ask that you would um, just meet your people and grow us, challenge us, shape us um, through what it is that your scriptures teach us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have a welcome table here that I think still has a couple Bibles. If not, maybe we need to order some more. But we would love for you to have a Bible. You can always look it up on your phone as well. But we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be looking in detail at verses 9 and 10. Uh, but to get a little bit of a wider context, I want us to go back to actually verse 7 as I read this. Leonard did an excellent job teaching through some of those verses last week. Um, but it'll help me to kind of lay some groundwork for verses 9 and 10. So we're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. The Apostle Peter writes, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if we pick up in verse 7, what we see is that Peter breaks all of humanity down into two groups. You see it there? There are those who believe, and there are those who do not believe. And he does that again at the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9 when he says, they stumble, that is, those who do not believe. And then he contrasts that with you, who are a chosen race, if you are a believer. So among all of humanity, this is the only distinction among people that has any real meaning, okay? Those who have believed upon Jesus for salvation and those who have rejected him. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who trust Jesus and those who do not trust Jesus. And in verses 7 and 8, when Peter speaks of the cornerstone and the rock of offense, he's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. As Leonard was explaining last week, then we are the people of God who are built up into a holy temple as living stones 
constructed upon Christ the cornerstone, the foundation. That brings us then to verses 9 and 10, where Peter fleshes out in more detail the implications of our faith. And these two verses, 9 and 10, are really about our new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. So we're going to come back to verse 9, but um, I want to begin by looking at verse 10. He says, the Apostle Peter writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so here Peter is speaking about our, our, our old identity, apart from Christ, and he's contrasting it with our new identity that we now have in Christ. Before Christ, we were not a people. Before Christ, we had no mercy given to us from God. But now that we have placed our faith in Jesus, we have become new. We've become a people. We've received mercy. We have a new identity. Praise God for that. But there's a lot more going on in this verse than might initially kind of meet the eye. Peter's touching on what I would say is some very deep biblical theology here. Okay? He's actually laying before us a concept that comes to us out of the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. Are you familiar with the book of Hosea? Verse 10 is taken out of Hosea chapters 1 and 2. Maybe you're not familiar with Hosea because it's one of the minor prophets and you know, as Christians, we don't read those books probably as much as we should. So let me kind of summarize what Peter is getting at out of the book of Hosea. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, God calls the prophet Hosea and he commands him to go and marry a whore. I realize it's not a very friendly word to toss around at church, but it's the biblical word. It's at least the word that the translation I'm using the ESV uses, and I understand there's kids in the room, but let's just be honest where the Bible is honest. The reason that God calls Hosea to marry a whore is because God wants to illustrate through their marriage his own relationship to his beloved people so that Israel, the nation who is supposed to be exclusively faithful to God, might be convicted of its sin against God. See, God himself is like a faithful, loving husband. And he has placed himself in a covenant relationship with this people, Israel. But Israel, his bride, is not faithful to him in return. Instead, God accuses them of going and whoring themselves out to different idolatries engaging in sin that is displeasing to him, perverting the exclusive and sacred covenant relationship that God intends to have with his chosen people. And so Hosea obeys God's command. He goes, he takes himself a wife. Her name is Gomer, and indeed she is a whore. She's unfaithful to him throughout the rest of the book, just like God's people Israel are constantly unfaithful to him throughout all of the Old Testament. And Hosea and his whore wife, Gomer, then become a living illustration of God's relationship to his idolatrous people. But 
Hosea and Gomer together do have a couple of kids, and this is where we begin to intersect with what Peter is writing here in verse 10. Their second-born child is a daughter, and God says, Hosea, I want you to name your daughter No Mercy, because God says that although Israel is my people, I will no longer have mercy on them for their idolatry that they conduct in offense to me. Then they have a third child, a son, and God commands Hosea to name that son not my people. Because God says, these are not my people, Israel. In their unfaithfulness to me, they reject me, and so I will call them not my people. Now look, there's a lot more going on to the book of Hosea than I have time to get into here. That's a very brief summary. But at the end of chapter 2, in verse 23, there's a prophecy And in that prophecy, God speaks of a day of salvation when God will say to his people, no mercy, I will have mercy upon you. When God will speak to his people that he has called not my people and he will make them his people. And they will respond to God and say, you are my God. They will become his chosen people because they will receive from him mercy and be transformed into the kind of people who don't go whoring after false gods and idols, but instead are committed and faithful to God from redeemed and purified hearts. And so God makes the life of Hosea and his marriage to Gomer an illustration for his own plan to save a people who will be faithful to him. And aren't you glad Hosea was called to that and not you? But in light of the story of Hosea, Peter is doing something really incredible here in verse 10. And this is what I want you to see. He's looking back at this Old Testament prophet or prophecy about Hosea, and he's telling the church that that prophetic word from God is now fulfilled in you, the church. You who are in Christ are the people that God promised to call my people and to give mercy. Now look again at verse 8. Peter says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the reason is because in order to become part of the people of God, you must do so through the mercy of God. God. There is no way to become part of the people of God that God calls my people through anything other than mercy. Only God's mercy can set you free from whoring after sin that you think will bring you pleasure but will only ever disappoint you and lead you to destruction. But this is absolutely contrary to the way most people operate, the way most people love. This is offensive to people. If I were to say to most people, the only way that you can be made right with God is not through your crummy good deeds, but through God's mercy, most people would say, I don't need that. In their fallen and ruined state, people don't think they need God's mercy. We are convinced that we are fine just the way we are. And in fact, we live in a culture that is engaged in an unbelievable campaign to encourage people to simply embrace themselves the way they are, no matter how ruined that might be. And the truth is, apart from God's mercy, we are spiritual whores. 
like Hosea's wife, Gomer. And Jesus is an offense to people because his message to people is that you are a sinner and you must repent. The only way to God is through the cross of Christ. And if you want to become a part of the people of God, then you cannot do so by your own good works because your good works suck in the eyes of God. God will only accept us to be part of his people by mercy through the blood sacrifice of Jesus who has atoned for our sins on the cross and therefore made us pure. Only the work of Jesus is sufficient to bring us close to God. So let me be very clear on this. If you're one of those people here this morning who thinks that you're a good person and therefore God will accept you, at least, you know, if you were to lay it all out on the table, you'd find like a little bit more on the side of good than bad, and so God should probably accept you. No, I want you to hear very clearly. The only hope is for you to throw yourself upon the mercy of God and beg Him for mercy. And the good news is, God loves to give mercy. He will give it to you liberally, like He has given it to me. God will make you one of His people if you only have the humility to ask. Now, for those of us who have received God's mercy, we are now called his people. We have this new identity, which Peter describes for us in verse 9. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all of the things that Israel should have been. When you read the Old Testament, this is what God was expecting from his people, but what you find again and again and again is that they fail to live up to it because of their constant whoring after those false gods. Israel failed to obtain these things, but Jesus, the Son of God, the true Son of Israel, succeeded And he now gives to all of us who place our faith in him his success. This is what Israel was supposed to be. And this is what we now are by faith in Christ. So I want to go through each of these aspects of our Christ-given identity. First, we are a chosen race. So if you know the story of the Old Testament, then you know that Abraham was called by God to be the father of a great nation, a chosen race of people, a great multitude of descendants who would be faithful to God. And we are now children of Abraham, not by virtue of the fact that we share the bloodline of Abraham, but because we share the faith of Abraham. God has chosen us to be his people, and so we are. Praise God for that. But we need to spend a moment reflecting on this word race, okay? Because Peter's understanding of race is very different than our modern understanding of this word. And I'm excited to seek some clarity on this subject together as a church because our culture has become recently very obsessed with race in recent years. Tragically, if we're honest, the concept of race has always divided this nation that we live in from the early days. But recently, there's been a resurgence of this topic 
as one of, I would say, the central issues of our culture today. And we live in a very confused culture. (laughs) Because if you pay attention, on one hand, the culture will say that actually there is no such thing as race. That's a social construct. And so, you know, any appeal to somebody's race is just, it's just part of a, a social construct. And yet, because our culture is so confused and because disgusting identity politics are being used all over the place to divide our society in an incredibly demonic way, you'll also hear on the other side that racism is everywhere, right? This thing that supposedly doesn't exist and is a cultural construct is also lurking behind every tree and every bush and every corner. And it's being thrown around indiscriminately in a way that is being used to destroy our society. Now, I'm not denying that there are people out there who engage in racism. Um, I'm not denying that there are people who choose to separate out the culture based on different racial features. That does happen. There are people who engage in the wicked, sinful behavior of preferentially treating certain people groups over and above other people groups. That does happen, and that's wrong. Whatever race you might be privileging and whatever race you might be denigrating, that partiality is biblically sinful. But I want to help you see two things, okay? First, I want you to understand the Bible does not care at all about race as you think about it. Race in the kingdom of God is absolutely irrelevant. It means nothing. And second, I want to show you that the only meaningful group that you belong to as a Christian is this group right here. It's the body of Christ. It is the redeemed sons and daughters of God. It is the saints, the church. So, since we're a chosen race, let's talk about the Bible's perspective on race so that I can show you that the Bible doesn't care about race the way that our culture is constantly throwing this concept around. The word that the ESV translates race here is the Greek word genos. Genos. It comes from the Greek verb ginomai, which means to be born or to come into existence. It's where we get our word Genesis from, dealing with beginnings and origins. It's even, this word genos even forms the the basis for the word gynecology. Do you see the connection, origins and beginnings? So when the ESV translates the word race, it's not referring to our tendency to parse people out into groups based on their external physical characteristics. The Bible does not have in mind here separating people by skin color. Peter's trying to get us to think about the origin of us as believers. Now, unfortunately, in the 17th century, people began to classify humans into different groups based on external characteristics like facial features or the color of their skin. And out of that grew our modern understanding of race. And it was actually done in order to create 
pecking orders among different people groups. Now, it's true that there are different ethnic distinctions among people on earth. There are different cultures. There are different ways that we speak, different ways that we dress or socialize or express ourselves. I, I acknowledge that. But the idea of race as we know it, the idea of race as it's constantly being force-fed to us from a secular pagan culture is entirely made up. It's fictional. It's, it's an absurd and unbiblical idea. As far as the Bible is concerned, the origin of the human race goes back to one common set of ancestors, Adam and Eve. They are the genesis of the human race. And therefore, there is only one human race. Yeah, the human race is organized by different nations and tribes and tongues and cultural distinctives, and the Bible does recognize those different distinctions. But underneath all of that, that's on, that's on the surface, underneath all of that, there is, according to the Bible, one human race. But as I said earlier, the Bible does classify people into two groups. Remember? The chosen race of which Peter speaks, those who have placed their faith in Christ, and the unchosen race, those who reject Jesus. What Peter has in mind here when he talks about a chosen race is a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. There are those who believe and there are those who do not believe. And that's it. That's the only distinction. There are those who have their origin Back in the Garden of Eden where Satan, the father of lies, enticed humanity to rebel from God. And therefore, in that origin, they are defined by their sin. Or the Bible says there are those who trace their origin back to the cross of Christ and the new birth of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, those people are believers. They have a spiritual birth into the kingdom of God. Christ and the Spirit are their origin. And this two-fold reality, it was uh, foretold in the Old Testament, or at least it was illustrated in the Old Testament, right? Do you know the story of the Bible? You have the nation of Israel who are God's chosen people, and then you have what? Everyone else who are called the Gentiles. And then in the New Testament, in the church age that we live, there are only two groups of people, two races, those who belong to Jesus and everyone else, those who've been born again by the Spirit of God and the rest of the world who rejects Jesus. Now, here's why this matters, okay? Maybe you're like, wow, this is a long discourse on race. Like, what, okay, what's the point here? As Christians, first, we are commanded not to show partiality for any reason. If, if we want to give a definition to racism, it is the sin of partiality. You are partial to one group of people at the expense of another group of people. That would be how the Bible would look at this. We are commanded as Christians to not show that partiality for any reason. We are commanded to love all people and treat them all equally, whether they are black or white, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're uh, intelligent and educated or ignorant and stupid, whether they're a friend 
or an enemy. As Christians, we are called to love all people equally. And if we show partiality in any way, based on any factors whatsoever, then we are guilty of sin and we need to repent of that sin. But this discussion on race also matters because whatever your race or your origin, your ethnicity, your tribe, whatever it might be, the people in this room, the people in this room are your family. That matters. You belong to this chosen race. Your race is Christian because you have been born of the Spirit of God. Your identity is in Christ. And so truly, you should not think of yourself first and foremost as black or white, as American or Filipino or Mexican. You shouldn't even think of yourself first and foremost as old or young or male or female. Those may be actual distinctions, but that's not what we think of first as Christians. As a Christian, you should think of yourself first as belonging to the body of Christ, to being a child of God. That together we are a chosen race means that we share the same identity in Christ. We have a shared origin in Jesus. And because you share Christ with the other people in this room, you have more in common with people in this room than you have with anyone who is not a Christian. Do you understand that? I mean, consider, consider twin brothers who are identical twin brothers, raised in the same house, same mother, same father. If one of those identical twin boys is a Christian and the other is not, that Christian twin shares more in common with you than he does with even his own identical brother if that brother is not a believer. Actually, you and that twin who is a Christian are of the same race, and his brother, who is an unbeliever, is of a totally different race. And this should probably cause you to radically reevaluate how you think about race when it's brought up in our culture. Because the amount of manipulation coming at us from those who would divide us on this subject, it's just astounding. And what is this race of God's children called Christians? What, is, what are we chosen for? Well, we are chosen to be God's people. We're chosen to do what Israel failed to do. We are chosen to be wholly devoted to God in all that we do from the heart that loves God. We're chosen so that we would forsake all other gods, all other ideologies, all other allegiances so that we might be committed to Christ alone. We're chosen so that we would have hearts that are committed only to Jesus. And by extension, because of our common genesis in Jesus, hearts that are committed to one another, devoted to each other in love. And so the people in this room, they're your family. They're your brothers and sisters. And no material features matter in this family. Nothing of material significance matters in the spiritual family of God. 
You know, our church is actually quite diverse. Did you know that? We've got people in this room born in America, born in Taiwan, born in Colombia, born in Haiti, born in the Philippines, born in China, born in Bolivia, born in France, and maybe there's more. I, I don't even know, potentially. That is an incredibly diverse group of people when there's like 100 people in a room. But it is irrelevant. It matters nothing in the eyes of God when he seeks to unite a people around Jesus Christ. We are not a diverse people. We are one people, unified and similar. It is not our diversity that makes us strong as Christians. It is our unity brought about by the Spirit of God, making us all connected in Christ. Only the internal spiritual feature of a new heart given by grace through faith in Christ matters. That is what unites us. And the bond that we share through Jesus Christ is a richer, fuller, more meaningful bond than any other bond could possibly be. It's greater than skin color. It's greater than gender. It's greater than wealth or education or country of origin or any other way that we might seek to divide ourselves down into little groups. As Christians, we're one race, chosen by God to be his beloved people. And you know what's kind of funny is we actually believe in a concept maybe that we could call transracialism. Because we believe that if there are two distinct races, those who believe and those who do not, you can trans-race from non-believer to believer. Right? We actually believe that you can leave the race of those who are unbelievers in order to become part of the race of those who believe. And so... I want you to understand, to think differently about race than I have just explained. Maybe you could think more fully, there might be more to say, but to think in opposition to what I have just laid out is unbiblical. Now, Peter also says in verse 9 that we're a royal priesthood. Again, this is what Israel was supposed to be, and they failed. But Jesus, as our representative and as the true Son of God who succeeded in doing what Israel failed, has now made us into a royal priesthood. And this is an interesting part of our identity because if you have paid attention as you've read the Old Testament, then you know that in the Old Testament, the office of priest and the office of royalty were two different offices. And they were actually not supposed to be brought together. That was a big no-no. If you know the story of King Saul, he had his dominion as king taken away by God because as king, he tried to do something that only the priest was supposed to do. And God became very upset at him for bringing the priesthood and royalty together. But in Christ, we have both royalty and priesthood. Since we are royalty, we're called to rule and reign alongside Jesus Christ as he brings his dominion over all of creation. After the resurrection, we will step fully into that role. Scripture tells us that we will rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. But did you know that your authority to rule 
as a king and a queen, has already begun in one sense? Do you know where you have God's dominion to rule right now? It is over your own heart, over your own life. And I don't mean this like our culture means it, like you do you, you just go do, like you're in charge, boss, whatever. I'm not talking about some kind of sickening absolute liberty to do whatever your crooked heart desires. That is not dominion, that is slavery. It is your responsibility as a king or queen ruling under the authority of Jesus Christ himself, the king of kings, to bring your will and your desires into alignment with his kingdom, to bring your heart and your will under his dominion. You have been given that authority. You've been given the freedom to submit your will to the will of God. Our royalty in this life does not mean that we rule over nations. It means that we rule over our own lives. No longer being slaves to sin like we once were before we were a royal priesthood. We are now slaves to the king. The king who has set us free and adopted us into his family. And our dominion as royalty has a priestly nature to it because priests serve God. A priest is devoted to the holy things of God. A priest carries out the commands of God with faithfulness and obedience. And so our dominion is to rule over our hearts and lives by bringing our will into submission to the one true king as we serve him faithfully as priests. Peter also tells us in verse 9 that with our new identity as God's people, having received mercy, that we are a holy nation. This kind of plays into the chosen race piece. We need to see ourselves first and foremost as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. God's goal on earth in this present age, this church age, is not to make another nation faithful to him like Israel was supposed to be. America is not God's holy nation. I'm sorry to disappoint you. If that was your belief up until this moment, let me explain it to you. This nation will perish like every other nation. God's intention is not to make America into some exceptional holy nation. Rather, God's goal in this church age is to gather for himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation, to make one new people group out of a multiplicity of peoples, one people that love God from the heart who will never perish. And the identifying mark of these people who make this nation it's not a common language. It's not a flag. It's not a currency or a government or some shared land mass. It's not even a shared culture. This holy nation is made up of people who share one king, who are committed with all of their hearts to his honor and his glory. I've literally traveled all over the world. I've, I've met people from so many different countries that are part of this holy nation. I've met people from God's holy nation in Sudan, a predominantly Muslim country. I've met them in India, a predominantly Hindu country. I've met them in the Dominican Republic, 
I've met them in England and Kenya and Bolivia, five different continents I have personally been to and interacted with people from God's holy nation. And in many ways, we could not be more different. And yet we are one people through the cross of Christ, sharing in common a passion for holiness, a passion for Jesus. One people group spread across the face of the earth with a shared heart for the glory of Jesus. And Peter tells us that God has given us this new identity because we are a people for his own possession. Think about this. Why does somebody possess something? Why do you have the possessions that you have? My daughter was going to answer my rhetorical question. I love it. I remember when my kids were very young, they each had one significant possession, one thing that they all possessed. I don't know, maybe there's some young kids in the room who have one of these with them right now. We always called it their softy because it was soft. They're blanky, right? Like Linus, Charlie Brown's friend from the Peanuts. Like everywhere my kids went, that possession, their softy, went with them. And if you've had little kids and you know, like the, the absolute catastrophic nature of bedtime without their possession, their softy. Why? Why does somebody possess something like that? Because when you possess something, it's valuable to you. You want it. It brings you joy. You care about it. It's precious to you. Friends, God possesses us for his own great delight. God possesses you because he loves you. He desires you because you are precious to him. Because he has chosen to possess you as his own. And it's almost scandalous, isn't it? That we, as broken and ugly and sinful as we are, would be held with such treasured regard by this God who is holy and just and good. It's almost scandalous to say that we are possessed by God because he takes great pleasure in us. He's chosen to be with us. He's chosen to hold us near in his heart. He's chosen to lavish his love and affection on us. We belong to him. We are precious to him. And he cherishes us. And you know what else? When you possess something, you also keep it, don't you? Don't you fight for it? Don't you go to great lengths to make sure that you don't lose it? Peter talked about this back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Maybe you want to just glance at it. That was a couple months ago we went through those verses. Jesus fills us with the Spirit of God so that we might belong to him with assurance and peace. We are possessed by the Spirit of God so that he might keep us safe. He claims us as his and he will not let us go or lose us because he possesses us. He will safeguard us so that none of his pleasure in possessing us might be lost. We are his. And so he will not abandon us or forsake us. And then finally, 
at the end of verse 9, Peter tells us why God has given us this new identity. God gives us this new identity so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has accomplished all of this, making us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own possession so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And he is excellent, isn't he? You know that you can't proclaim that something is excellent unless you know that it is excellent, right? I mean, you can't share with your friend about how good some restaurant is unless you've been there. You can't talk about how beautiful Ireland is unless you've experienced it. Maybe that's through a picture. But you get my point. In order for you to proclaim the excellency of Jesus, you must first taste the excellency of Jesus. So I would ask you, do you really know how wonderful and beautiful and absolutely excellent Jesus Christ is? Do you know the surpassing greatness of his love towards you? Do you really believe that from obedience to Jesus will flow your greatest joy, unspeakable joy? Have you really tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Can you recall how terrible that darkness was that you used to dwell in before God called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light? Do you truly understand that all of your joy, all of your happiness, all of your contentment as a person is bound up entirely in the excellency of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that no amount of money or pleasure or success could ever surpass the treasure that you have been given in Jesus Christ? You cannot proclaim these things until you actually first know these things. And if you don't know the excellency of Jesus, then I implore you, my assignment, my application for you would be to go and figure it out. Go home and pray that God would show you the excellency of Jesus Christ. God will answer that prayer. Go home and search the scriptures to see how utterly transcendently beautiful Jesus is. Give yourself to searching out the treasure of Christ so that you might know the excellency of his marvelous light. And if you do know the excellency of God, I promise this is my last point, if you know the treasure of the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, then I implore you, proclaim it. Proclaim it to God in worship and adoration and praise and thanksgiving as you recognize that his excellency surpasses all other things. Proclaim it in your prayer. Proclaim it in your thanksgiving. Proclaim it in your praise. Proclaim it to God. And proclaim it to your brothers and sisters in this room who need to be reminded when temptation comes that Jesus is greater. Proclaim to them the goodness that they've received in Christ. Proclaim it to the world. Proclaim it to the lost. Shout it louder than the lies of the culture that says that goodness is to be found in something worthless and miserable. 
proclaim it so that in your faithfulness, God might use your work to bring many more sons and daughters out of that despair of darkness and into the marvelous joy of his light. Proclaim it here in Maricopa to your friends, to your neighbors, to anyone that God will put in your path so that the marvelous light of Christ might be known in our city. Proclaim this good news every chance you get. That once there was no mercy, but now there is mercy. Once there was only a people rejected by God for their sin, but now, now there is a people who are beloved of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the body and blood of your son, Jesus. He was precious to you. He was your possession from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world. And yet to secure our redemption, Father, you surrendered your precious possession, your own son, in order to bring to you many sons and daughters, in order to make a people, in order to make a holy nation, a chosen race. God, we thank you that you have loved us in this way. And I pray that in response to your love, we would be a faithful people, that we would know the excellency of Jesus, that we would live under the excellency of Jesus, and we would proclaim his excellency. In Christ's name, amen.